Well, hello and happy Sunday, everybody. It's great to see you today. Uh, we're going to be back in the book of 2 Timothy this afternoon. If you want to go ahead and reach for your Bibles, turn and scroll there. Many of you will be able to do so in those deluxe, beautiful blue Bibles. Thank you to Swain Lee for getting us good to go on that, uh, which makes me also think of the exciting thought that, Lord willing, we will have a book stall this time next week. Thank you to Mr. Josh Ardos. So, uh, some of you remember when Josh was first put up to be the deacon of Bookstall. I made the mistake of thinking he was the deacon of basketball, which would have made sense one way or the other. But nonetheless, we'll be excited for next week. No pressure. Uh, speaking of basketball, if I were to ask some of you, who, are, who would you say is the best players of all time? All right. What would you say? Some of you know Michael Jordan, and that's about it. And that is fine. Uh, others of you might say LeBron or Magic or Kareem. I said that earlier to Carissa. Carissa said, who is Kareem? Uh, but what about Bruce Bowen? Anyone think about him? Or how about Ben Wallace or Ron Artest? No? Why not? Why wouldn't they come to mind? Many of you don't even know who they are, have never heard the name, and that's because while they're some of the best defenders who have ever played the game, that's about it. They were good at defense primarily and oftentimes only. Well, if you remember from chapter one of 2 Timothy, Last time we talked about how we ensure the gospel reaches not only every nation, but also how it reaches every generation. And how our very first responsibility is to guard the truth of the gospel, to be on defense for the sake of the gospel. And we talked the way we do that is by cultivating our faith, by contending for our faith, and by committing to our faith. Cultivating, contending, and committing. But church, like I said, most of what we talked about last time was strictly about our defense, how we guard the purity and the truth of the faith, which is absolutely and fundamentally critical. But one thing we can't do is just simply stop there. God has not called us to simply hunker down and correct opponents and show them why they're theologically wrong. Tragically, many otherwise faithful churches have fallen into this trap. It's become simply about being right. And if that's where it stops, if that's all we do with the truth, well then we've fallen tremendously short of what God intends for his people. So let me be abundantly clear, New Covenant Baptist Church, yes, we care about doctrine, absolutely. Yes, we will commit ourselves to guarding God's truth, but yes, we will also commit ourselves to going on offense for the sake of the gospel. Amen? To working tirelessly to see it reach every nation and generation. And so today, we're going to look at how God would have us do just that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So as we continue to look at a letter between the Apostle Paul and his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, we should find ourselves asking a few things. We should ask, what is God's strategy then for carrying the gospel to every nation and generation? For our sake today, what are we to do? Where is a good soldier of Jesus Christ supposed to start? And as we consider an offensive strategy, how are we to proceed? 
Well, I have three points for us today in considering how we do just this. So number one is stay on task. That's verse one through verse seven. Stay on task. Number two is stay grounded in Christ. That's verse eight through verse 13. And number three is stay faithful to the truth. That's verse 14 through verse 26 of the rest of chapter two. So after shoring up our gates and auditing our own defenses, how are we then to proceed outward as God's people? Number one, stay on task. Number two, stay grounded in Christ. Number three, stay faithful to the truth. Look with me at verses one through seven. I'll go ahead and read them. They say, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So you'll see there in the heading of most of your Bibles, kind of like an editorial title to the section. And while I must confess, I'm actually not much of a fan in them and want, of them and want to remind you they're not divinely inspired. They're just there to be helpful. Uh, sometimes they can be helpful. And in this case, I think it's good. The, the ESV says a good soldier in Christ Jesus. I think the CSB and the NIV have more strange ones. So no offense to our diehard NIV and CSBers, but a good soldier for Christ Jesus stays on task. Verse one says, you then, my child, being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So I actually think this is a connected thought or continuation from our text last time in chapter one. Uh, If you want to flip back to chapter one, verse six, we talked about cultivating our faith. In verse 6 it says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then just a few verses later in verse 9, it says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And this is what Paul wants Timothy, wants us to be strengthened by day to day. This kind of grace. So for all the, the, the comic book con fellows out there, whatever it's called, uh, you know how Superman, for example, draws his power from the sun. So as he sits there and closes his eyes and feels the warmth wash over him, it's the same idea. He becomes strengthened by it. And for the Christians, as we close our eyes in prayer and feel the weight and the rush of God's love wash over us, we can't help but be strengthened by it. That's what's going on here. And the Apostle Paul continues. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, meaning the reputation, the content, consistency of the message he preached, he says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what is the task at hand? What is the grand and divine strategy of the Lord Most High for extending his saving message to the ends of the earth and through all time? 
It's teach and trust to faithful men what you've been given that they may be able to teach others also. The NIV says to entrust to reliable people that they might be able to teach others also. So sisters, this of course applies to you as well in your discipling and evangelistic relationships. With some of us, we might expect something a little bit more grand. No, something a little bit snappier, something with a greater oomph factor, greater reach and impact, revolutionary, right? But church, for anyone who truly knows God, our God, we know too often that that is not how he chooses to work in the world. He prefers the slow, steady, battle-tested and faithful kind of growth over the flair and the fads and the glitzy, glamorous pop-up ministry models that appeared every 25 years or so. Remember, this is the same God who says the kingdom of God is like a grain or a mustard seed or like a small lump of leaven in a loaf of bread. Meaning the kingdom of God is what appears small and slow and really rather insignificant before it then over time grows and grows and blooms into everything we could ever imagine. Oftentimes when I, I, I travel to random cities for work, I've got another one coming up this week, I pass these, these tiny churches in this corner and that corner that appear faithful. And I can't help but think about how what goes on there every single week is the most supernatural and significant thing happening in that town, hands down. It's not even close. I think of even the, uh, our sending church in Washington, D.C., where I spent five years, and many of us came from, literally in the heart of the most powerful, most significant city on the planet with the Capitol building and the White House and the Pentagon within a five to ten minute drive. And what's going on in those buildings, no matter what's going on around the world at any point in time, can't even hold a candle to what's taking place inside that church in terms of significance. What thought to behold? And while the world may tell us that we need this and that in order to be successful, in order to draw a crowd and, and attract people and ensure your message crosses cultural bounder, boundaries and generational barriers, our God tells us here, simply entrust what we've been given to those who are faithful. That is the task at hand. That is your primary objective as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And church, to encourage you, it's been an abundant blessing for me to see how so many of you give so much of yourself to this very idea, right? And teaching and trusting God's word to those around you and to fellow members. I think of sisters like, like Hani and, and, and Emily Holly, their love and zeal for God's word, right? And for sharing the glorious truths of it with countless church members. I think of John McKinney and his supernatural hospitality and desire to see Christian men grow in the Lord, I think of Key with such a special care and reverence and excitement over the scriptures. Thank you for your labors, friends. And we'll hit a little bit more on this towards the end, but my prayer, church, is that we would stay on task, that we would trust God in his plan and design and his strategy for his people and equip as many brothers and sisters as we possibly can with however many years the Lord gives us. Amen? Amen. You'll remember from chapter one, we saw the faithful example of Anisiphorus. It's towards the end there. 
He was not ashamed of Paul's chains or his suffering for the sake of the gospel. Rather, he sought him out and wasn't afraid to be seen with or as a societal outcast. And we agree that Anisiphorus was saying, not just with words, but with his life, that he was absolutely committed to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the, 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 the suffering servant who endured hardship and abandonment and unpopularity now, but an ending glory later. Temporal suffering in this life, eternal satisfaction in the next. And with these two ideas in mind, and trusting to the faithful, and sharing in the suffering that comes with being faithful, Paul continues by giving a few tangible, uh, uh, real-life examples of what it looks like to stay on task. And we could spend a whole while on a bunch of these, but for the sake of time and clarity, we'll move through rather quickly. The first is right there in verse 4. If you look down with me, it says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So this is the idea that a soldier knows his objective, knows who he is serving, knows who he's taking commands from and has his eyes fixed on the mission at hand rather than getting involved in the affairs of the foreign land. Think of like a, a, um, a soldier who's overseas, right? And his job is to guard his country's embassy. One day he's manning his post and he sees across the street somebody stealing a kid's bike. And Mr. Soldier, having known how terrible it is to have your bike stolen as a kid, proceeds to leave his post and chase down this perpetrator, leaving the embassy to the door wide open. And now before we go on and judging this hypothetical soldier for his failure too much, Friends, this is Paul's point exactly. This is exactly what we literally do all the time. We know why we're here. We know who has sent us. We know what we are to do. And yet too often we're found either chasing the trinkets and the distractions of this world and sometimes even those things which look and feel and seem really critical and urgent. And we look just like everybody else. Where we don't look like soldiers from another land. We don't look like ambassadors representing the interests of another kingdom. No, we look just like the citizens of the world around us, pursuing the things that will perish along with it. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The next example we have is of an athlete who is not crowned, it says in verse 5, unless he competes according to the rules. This just means the Christian doesn't create his own set of rules to live by. It's as simple as that. The true Christian can't just wake up and decide, you know what? I'm, I don't want to be unpopular anymore. I'm just not going to be unpopular anymore. I don't want to take a stand against the waves of culture. I don't really need to be holy or deny myself in order to be a Christian. Or the common, the, the common COVID era, uh, era claim, which is, I don't need to belong to a church to be a Christian. Paul says, you can make your own rules, but don't call yourself a Christian. Don't claim to take Christ's name if you're not going to follow and submit him, submit to him. That's actually incredibly offensive to him. 
Call yourself an agnostic or spiritual but not religious or pantheistic if you're going to try and do that. Or another way of looking at it would be don't make up your own rules for worshiping God or taking the gospel to every nation and generation. God tells us in his word how he wants to be and will be worshiped, and that's not up to us to decide. And similarly, God tells us for his, uh, his strategy for bringing the gospel to every nation and generation, as we've seen, it's entrusting the truth to those who are faithful and are able to teach others also. It's not about crafting clever marketing schemes to keep up with the times or to appeal to carnal people on the basis of what they already want as natural people, John Piper would say. And it's not about manipulating people into saying magical words of the sinner's prayer, which would then obligate God to save them no matter what they do, like some kind of genie in the bottle. No, it's, it's running God's race according to God's rules for God's glory and our eternal enjoyment of him. Amen? Amen. And then verse 6, he gives us his final illustration. He says, it is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And this is very similar to the last one. Essentially, there's no cutting corners here. It's as though Paul were saying, in case I didn't make myself clear enough, you are not building Christ's kingdom or completing the Great Commission on your own timelines. You cannot force or manipulate God's timing and results. You cannot inject growth hormones into the kingdom of God or cannot dump piles of sugar onto the gospel to make it taste sweeter to those who hate God. Right? I think of many parachurch organizations, denominations, even many in our own denomination who seek to do just this, whether explicitly or implicitly, consciously, subconsciously. We're going to plant 5,000 churches and raise up 10,000 pastors and execute 50,000 baptisms in the next five years. Paul would say, have fun with that. You're not a hardworking farmer. You're a salesperson. And friends, I think of our own church and our own personal discipleship uh, uh, with Christ. Take our study of God's word, for example. As we look to stay on task and entrusted to those around us, let's be honest with ourselves. Would your time with the Lord in his study of his word be classified as hardworking? Are you laboring to grow in your knowledge and study of his word for yourself? Are you a hardworking farmer working the endless soils of God's word for your good and his glory? Or are you looking more like a, a, a distracted or impulsive shopper? Just kind of grabbing what you need and giving it, not giving much thought on your way out the door. There are many opportunities to take advantage of this church, whether through disciplined word-based discipling relationships or Bible study workshops like the Simeon's Trust, which we've done from time to time here at this church. I'd love to talk more of you. Uh, if you're interested, I'll be out back after service. Pastor James will be right here. And what does God have to say about this? Look at verse seven. It says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Christian, think over what he says. Sit with it. Meditate in his word. Wrestle with what you see. Talk to him about it. Talk to others about it. Every moment you spend doing this in God's word will only serve to strengthen your ability to stay on task and prove faithful. 
And just to clarify, this is not about our own efforts, our own ability to perform and do lots of Christian things that make us look like we're mature believers. And this is what brings us to our second point. Stay grounded in Christ. Stay grounded in Christ. Look with me at verse verse eight. It says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead descended from David. Or in other words, remember Jesus Christ, the suffering one who faced death but defeated it. Remember him, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Think to yourself, this is what I am giving my life for. He is why I'm suffering. This is the greatest message of all time, the best news anyone will ever hear. This is not about me and my talents and potential. This is about God, who is the most perfect and glorious and satisfying being in the universe, who has ever existed, who will ever exist, period. This is his world and everything in it. And this God has graciously given each one of us here today, each in every individual in the universe who has ever existed, will ever exist, life. Eternal life in the sense that we are all eternal beings. We just may spend it in different places. He has breathed life into their lungs, into our lungs. And God's desire for humanity is that we would live in perfect fellowship with him forever. But what's happened is we've severely messed that up through our sin. We have broken fellowship with God in our continual pursuit over our lives and our wants and our plans instead of what God would have. I often say in our membership classes, we don't sin because anyone forces us to. We sin because that's who we are. We're born into this curse. It's infected everything. He said in the prayer earlier, this is not how the world is supposed to be. So fellowship with God is broken and left to ourselves, we are on a trajectory to spend the eternity apart from him and all his goodness forever. But God himself entered into this world and took on human flesh that he might live a perfect and obedient life and therefore rebuild or really become that bridge that has been blown between us and God. And he himself then died the death that is due us, right? That we might look at our sin, look at the way we're headed, come to our senses and reject it and turn from it. And turn to God and see him for all that he is and run headlong into that bridge of forgiveness through Christ and be in restored fellowship with God forever. This is what we call repentance and faith. The turning away from sin and to Christ and his suffering substitutionary sacrifice for us. And who, as Paul writes in verse 8, is risen from the dead, who defeated death once and for all. So for anyone here today who hears his voice right now, who are running headlong into your sin, headlong into your sin, and therefore for death and destruction, please, I implore you, pause for a moment as you consider what's coming for you. 
Look the other direction, back at the Lord Jesus and his love for you on the cross. Look at him and his death and resurrection for you. Friend, would today be the day where you say, you know what? I'm done with this. This sin, this lifestyle has, has given me nothing except wanting more of it. And that's going to bring me to my eternal grave. Would you turn from your sin and be rescued by the Lord Jesus into his eternal kingdom? May today be the day. I promise you it's worth it. It's worth everything you have. Which is what we see here with the Apostle Paul, who's given everything he has, even to the point of suffering and imprisonment, bound with chains, church. But the word of God is not bound. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be extinguished, church. It cannot be suppressed. That's not only the message of the New Testament in our text here, but also throughout history. Over the past 2,000 years, ever since Jesus came, that's why the religious and the governing authorities killed him. People wouldn't stop talking about him. And so they said, all right, let's get rid of him once and for all. Let's arrest him and let's bind him. I don't care if we have to kill this man. Whatever it takes to shut him up and make him go away. Whatever it takes to shut everybody up. And so they proceeded. They killed him and they put him in the grave. And sure enough, that's the end of it, right? Back to business. And God says, you think death is an obstacle for me? And Jesus got up from that grave and revealed himself to his people. And for the past 2,000 years, despite any and every attempt in opposition through history, the gospel of Jesus Christ has spread like wildfire throughout the globe. You can't shut this down. No one can shut him down. You can try and kill him. You can seek to intimidate his people and shut them up. You can burn their books. You can legislate every kind of law against them and him. And you can bind them up and make them suffer in every possible kind of way. And you know what? The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not bound. It never will be. Which is why Paul says in verse 10, friends, this is why I endure anything and everything for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's people who will come to know him and enjoy his salvation for eternity. These are the ones we talked about who stop in their tracks and turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation and fellowship with God forever. Stay grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, church. Though sorrow, need, and death be yours, we sing sometimes, you will not be forsaken. This is how you will endure to the end, and he is how you will stand firm in the face of anything that may come your way as you seek the advancement of his gospel. Amen? Because we see in verse 11, it says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So what this is, is appears to be an ancient Christian hymn. Isn't that kind of cool? Right, like a hymn we would sing in our gathering today. 
And the main point here seems to be how future glory offsets all of our present sufferings. And the structure is mirrored. Plus, plus, minus, minus. What do I mean by that? Let's look at the first line. It says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. So present suffering, future glory. This is also a beautiful picture of baptism. Right, so Katie uh, and Cody and Titus and Mina, who were just baptized here a couple of weeks ago, what does it symbolize? Dying with Christ and therefore living with Christ. And congratulations, friends. That's called eternal life. Verse 12 says, if we endure in suffering, we will also reign with him in glory. And then it says, but if we deny him, he will Deny us. So anyone here who's perhaps ever heard a message from someone saying something similar to, God is absolutely obsessed with you. No matter who you are and what you do, whether you repent from sin or not, those messengers are lying to you. They do not know God and they do not love the Lord Jesus as he really is. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 10? He said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And finally, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, wait a second. We just said if we deny him, he will deny us. But now God remains faithful even if we have no faith? Even if we remain faithless? Well, how does that work? Biblical scholars have held all kinds of opinions on verse uh, 13 throughout history. One angle that can be taken sometimes, I've taken this before, is that since this is a hymn, this is kind of like the artistic and surprising statement at the end, kind of like the prestige in a magic trick, right? That even when we fail and stumble, God will remain faithful to us. And while that kind of, hear me here, while that kind of theology is absolutely true, fundamentally true and biblical, we said in, in our um, scriptural pardon, right? John, uh, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful to forgive. Absolutely. This text, though, doesn't say fail and stumble. It says faithless. They don't believe. To add to that, the structure of this hymn points in every way that the use of faithful here probably isn't actually a good thing for the faithless. It's a minus. It's a negative thing. Just like denying, uh, him denying us in the line above. And then furthermore, if you look at the clue we have at the end of verse 13, it's the grounds for the above statement or the reasoning. It says, for he cannot deny himself. Or in other words, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so while some might you know, think that this concluding event could be a, a source of encouragement to the, face, uh, to the faithless, I don't think that's quite it. On this, our brother Isaac Adams, fellow pastor, says, 
This will only make sense if and only if we understand that we are not the center of the universe. God is. Because how many of us, naturally, including myself, all of us, would automatically assume that God being faithful here in this text means him being faithful to us? How often when we read the scriptures do we write ourselves in as the main subject line? And we have to be careful, friends, not to, not to do that because while good theology is obviously good, the safer bet is to look exactly what is the text in front of you that the Holy Spirit-inspired author is saying. And this is a perfect example because God being faithful here does not mean, in my opinion, being faithful to us. Rather, it's God being faithful to God, to himself. And that is the best news we could ever hear. If we remain faithless, he will remain faithful to his word, to his warnings, to his promises, for he cannot deny himself. He will not, in other words, he will not say, you must repent and believe in order to enter the kingdom of God. And then in the end say, actually, I was just kidding. Actually, I had a change of heart. Actually, you know better than I did. Your social media campaigns really had a difference on me. No, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. He also says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I could go on and on, but if I return to Paul's main point of using his him here, it's to make the point that suffering, unpopularity, and abandonment now is worth the eternal glory to be received later. Not that you can be faithless now and deny him now and still inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, we will fail and stumble. Yes, we will be faithless in the sense of, you know, we will not always live up to the perfect standard. And yes, as 1 John 1, 9 says, and as we read, if we uh, confess our sins to God, he will be faithful to forgive us. But if we reject him, if we deny him, if we go on living our life in sin and faithlessness, he will be faithful to himself. We must die with him. We must endure. We must stay grounded in Christ, even through suffering, in order to inherit the kingdom of God and make advances for the gospel. Which brings us to our third and final point. In order to be a good soldier for Christ Jesus, stay faithful to the truth. Stay faithful to the truth. So, Friends, so much of this points back to our First two points, and if I were to break it down even further, stay faithful to the truth in your doctrine and stay faithful to the truth in your life. Doctrine and life, life and doctrine. Verse 14 reads, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And then if you skip verse 15 for a minute, we'll come back to it. You go to verse 16. He's essentially saying something very similar. He says, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So in verse 14, Paul is essentially saying, stay on task, stay grounded in Christ in whatever you do. Don't get caught up in foolish chatter and arguments and controversies that don't matter. All it does is distract from the main thing, the main task at hand. If I were to translate this over to 2022, I would say don't stay up until 2 a.m. at Denny's, right, arguing about superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism, 
Okay, don't find yourself in the metro obsessing over eschatological debates while the person next to you is perhaps headed for eternal destruction and you haven't shared the gospel with anyone in over a year. Don't write a dissertation on election and predestination when you yourself are as prideful and as self-righteous as it gets. Because all you do is bankrupt the gospel for all it's worth. We quarrel about words and you partake in irreverent babble. Friends, stay faithful to the truth, nothing more nothing less. And then if you look into verse 15 where it says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So this letter of 2 Timothy has a lot to say about shame. Paul brings it up on several occasions throughout Last chapter, if you remember, he ta- uh, when we talked about Anisiphorus, we said he wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. And in other places, Paul urges Timothy not to be ashamed of the suffering that comes with preaching the gospel. And yet here, Paul indicates a time when Timothy actually, look at it, should be ashamed. And that is when Timothy, or if Timothy, were to ever handle the word of God wrongly. Timothy should be ashamed if he handles and teaches and preaches the word of God wrongly. And to that end, friends, every teacher of God's word should be ashamed if they handle it wrongly. Pastor James and myself ought to be ashamed if we handle the word wrongly. It doesn't get much worse to speak out of line for God or in place of God, to claim it then as divinely inspired and authoritative is at best legalistic and at worst heretical. Or worse, for teachers and preachers who use God's word intentionally to tell you and I lies. A lot of stuff you'll see on the television and the internet. There's this one minister who points to God's covenant with us and literally says that that God's covenant legally obligates him to provide us with healing, financial, and familial blessings along with a victorious mind. Just kind of throw that in there as a bonus. Or as we talk about, we talked about in chapter one, laziness in handling God's word. Or even just in our last point, reading into the text potentially what's not there. Paul says we ought to be ashamed. And having already touched on verse 16, if you look at verse 17 and 18, they say they, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. Look specifically at what Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying. You see what's going on here? They're saying the resurrection, that's the resurrection of the dead, the final day. They're saying that's already happened. They're not outright denying a fundamental truth of Christianity. No, they're twisting it ever so slightly in such a way that would cause others to lose the final hope they have. And really, it's either one of two things. Either, number one, they're unwilling to wait for the resurrection of the dead, and they want glory now and glory later, a common thread among prosperity teachers, or they've already given up on it. They've given up hope and are leading others into giving up on theirs as well. Both supremely wicked, both supremely damnable. Stay faithful to the truth. Because it says, verse 19 says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Brothers and sisters, 
you will face the temptation, if you're not already facing it, to alter the truth. Either in your sharing of the gospel or in your stances on various social issues because you fear, we fear, rejection and unpopularity. You may also face temptation to give up on the truth altogether because you're tired of waiting. You're tired of the grind of life and the struggle against sin. You're not sure how much longer you can go. Or perhaps you'll find yourself tempted to do both. Alter the truth and give up on it because you're tired of denying yourself in the things of this world. I would just say, brothers and sisters, hang in there. Don't forget the soldier with a laser-like focus or the athlete who's continually in a gym day after day or the farmer who wakes early and puts in the work to reap the harvest. Stay grounded in the truth as you handle it in your doctrine, in your life, that you may be used by God. Look at me at verse 20. It says, now in a great house, there is not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Uh, My wife and I's dryer recently stopped working. Uh, It worked, it just wasn't producing any heat. And anyways, I, we got a few things swapped out, uh, but one of the things I had to do was replace the vent or the air duct. And so I go to Home Depot to get a few things, one of which was a replacement air duct, uh, but it was the cheapest one. Not very well made, not built to last. And what happened as I was simply you know, trying to, to put it on, the whole thing falls apart on me. And what was once one piece now was several. It was useless to me. It couldn't serve its purpose. So I had to go and find another one, one better equipped to do the job. Do you want to be used by God, brothers and sisters? What does your life look like? You see, these verses are not talking about salvation. The use of words like honorable and dishonorable and cleansing ourselves aren't here with respect to us being saved on some kind of uh, merit and white knuckle uh, attempts on our own. Now, this is talking about the usefulness of our lives for his purposes. Let me ask again, do you want to be used by God? Are you being used by God or are you fine with coasting? Are you coasting right now? Most people often have dreams of making some sort of difference in this world. And these verses tell us that the only way we're ever going to be able to do that for God is if we commit ourselves to growing in holiness. You can be the air duct or the the tool that gets used, or you can be the one that proves unreliable and ultimately just not very useful. And so what are we to do? And how? Well, verse 22 says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. I think of uh, Joseph, right? who upon temptation dropped everything and ran. Think of if you're in a public setting and you hear a loud bang and you just immediately dart, right? Any youthful passions in your life right now, run. 
may today be the day. If I were to rephrase this, right, because it says, where is it right there in verse 22, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, don't do it alone. If I were to rephrase this, I would say, take advantage of the church God has placed you in to fight the fight of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That you may be used uh, by God and make advances for his gospel. So newsflash, lone wolf Christianity is not a thing. You won't find it in the Bible. It won't make you useful to God. The rest of the New Testament testifies that if that's the route you go, not only will you not be useful to God, you're actually in grave danger in your faith. Because the way to be used by God is, number one, become a member of a faithful local church. It doesn't have to be this one, although we'd love to have you. Number two, press deeper into those around you who God has placed there to help you flee the things that have entangled you for years, sometimes even decades, who will sit with you and pray with you and hold you accountable and fight with you to stay faithful to the truth laid out in God's word, to help you see that his way really is better than ours. Whether we see it or not, we wake up and the moment we wake up, we are being told lies from the devil and from our own sinful flesh. We're constantly straying, friends. We need people in our lives to bring us back in and reorient ourselves to the truth in God's word. Friend, resolve today to bring someone ever so much closer into your life. Think of one person you can do that with to help you pursue righteousness, faith, and love together. Verse 23 emphasizes again to stay faithful to the truth and the task at hand, just like we saw in verses 14 and 16. And then finally, if you look at verse 24 onward, I'll just read it. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What a chilling thought that is. I'm very thankful because generally speaking, I don't think we as a, as a church at New Covenant Baptist Church are overly obsessed with um, like splitting hairs on doctrine and just looking to call people out on their failures. So thank you for that. But on these verses, let me just say God's desire for you is not just that you would win arguments for you. It's that you would win souls for him, right, through the gospel. In your sharing of the gospel, your job is, to, is not to just get the other person to agree no matter what the cost. It's not just to convince them, like I said earlier, to say the magic words because his or her salvation does not ultimately rest with you and me. That's what verse 25 is there for. It says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Friend, your job is to be as faithful and gentle as possible. Doing your part in what God has called you to and trusting him in his goodness for results. If you haven't noticed, adults generally don't respond to forcefulness or harshness like kids do. We have to win them with gentleness. In church, when it comes to God's truth, we already have everything we need. We have the truth. We don't have to twist it or make it seem like we need to lie to anybody. Anyone ever hear, you know, try to leave the house, but you can't find your keys? I do this stuff all the time. It drives Chris a bananas. 
you go and look everywhere and search everything over and over and ask for the millionth time, Carissa, are you sure you haven't moved them? Right? And then how many of you in this situation or some of you know, find yourself that you've actually had them on you the whole time? You've just spent all of that energy for nothing. And friends, I've heard it said, this is exactly what it's like when it comes to having God's truth available to us. We don't have to act like we're in debt, like we, like we don't have something that we already have. Stay faithful to the truth that you have. Let it speak for itself and then simply trust God. We've talked a lot about faithfulness today. I mean, God's strategy for the spread of the gospel is to entrust it to those who are faithful. And as we conclude, really at this point, we must ask, we have to ask, who are the faithful ones that we ought to be looking for? What does it look like to be faithful? How do we seek to be faithful ourselves? And we've seen in places it it looks like it's one who can teach others. We've seen that it's the one who perseveres in the face of suffering and unpopularity. And we've seen that it's the one who holds fast to the, the truth as he or she pursues righteousness. So what does it look to be faithful? Really, it's our three points for today. The faithful one is the one who stays on task, who stays grounded in Christ, and who stays faithful to the truth. The faithful one is the one who takes a look at the world and all that it has to offer and says, no, thank you. I have the Lord Jesus. It's the soldier. It's that athlete, that farmer who turns from their sin and sprints into the arms of God, who doesn't just consume or defend or correct, but genuinely loves as Christ loved, who at the end of it all, when all is said and done, can say with a clear conscience, yes, I stayed on task. Yes, I stayed grounded in Christ. And yes, I stayed faithful to the truth. And who will be finally welcomed home and hear the words, what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a God who is faithful. God, that you are a God who is most and first and foremost faithful to you and how that is such good news for us, Lord. You tell us that you will be faithful to us if we confess our sins to you. You will be faithful to forgive. God, for anyone here today, who's caught in sin, cause them to confess their sins to you, knowing that you will be faithful to them. God, we pray that you would strengthen us by the grace that is in Christ Jesus to do your work, that we would stay grounded in the gospel. God, that we would keep the main thing the main thing. And we do this for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.